Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andro. NATO was built to counteract the Soviet Union in its day and time. At this point, there is no threat coming from the Soviet Union because there is no Soviet Union anymore. And where there was the Soviet Union once, there are now a number of countries, among them the new peaceful and democratic Russia. The words of Vladimir Putin being interviewed in November 2001. My guest today is Professor of International Politics at the University of Birmingham. He is a NATO specialist and a one-time scholar of Russia and the former Soviet Union. He is currently co-authoring a book entitled What's Wrong with NATO and How to Fix It, which is lucky because that is precisely the subject of today's podcast. Welcome to the bunker, Professor Mark Weber. It's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Mark, can we begin by looking necessarily in very broad brushstrokes at the sort of things NATO got right and got wrong, let's say, first of all, during the run-up to the annexation of Crimea? Uh, It's a very interesting question. Uh, I need to make two uh, qualifications first uh, before getting to a a direct answer. Uh, The first is... Uh, how far back one decides to look. Um, if the the Russian invasion of February of 2022 came after many years of deteriorating relations between Russia and the countries of NATO, and uh, one can start the story at a number of different points in time uh, and try and uh, ascertain what went wrong. Uh, so where we start is quite important. The second uh, qualification, and actually there'll be a running theme, I think, throughout our discussion, is NATO is a reality as an organisation, but I think most NATO watchers would understand that NATO is an aggregate of its members. So Mm -hmm. uh, when looking at things that are accorded to, for which NATO is seen to be responsible, it's often actually a a set of actions associated more with the United States. Uh, And when we come in a moment to the discussion about assistance to Ukraine, actually NATO as NATO doesn't play much of a role. It's it's actually individual allies. Historians would probably say you have to start uh, with the end of the Cold War and the opportunity that the end of the Cold War afforded uh, countries uh, in West and Eastern Europe 
and what was uh, emerging as the former Soviet Union to come to some new dispensation on what at the time was referred to as the European security architecture. Significant efforts were made, some of which were very successful, uh, not least the unification of Germany at that point. Uh, But NATO survived and the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union disappeared. There was a few years in the early 90s when there was, I guess, quite a magical and unprecedented opportunity to bring Russia into a form of deep partnership with the alliance. Uh, This would not, I think, have meant membership. Um, And efforts were made on both sides to try and construct some, some sort of arrangement. And things were looking good. In the early to mid-90s, Russia was a partner of the alliance uh, in peacekeeping in Bosnia, for instance. Things then started to go wrong in the late 90s, and I won't go through every step. But in in some ways, the, the things that went wrong are not necessarily something you can attach blame to one side uh, or the other. It's, if you like, the tyranny of small decisions, which over time gave rise to a complete impasse between uh, Moscow and and the countries of the alliance. So there is a whole catalogue of different issues which separated Russia uh, from NATO. Russia disagreed with the NATO intervention on behalf of Kosovo in 1999. The, the NATO allies uh, disagreed uh, with Russia's uh, aggression against Georgia in 2008. There were disputes about... Uh, NATO missile defence. There were disputes about the deployment of conventional forces under what was called the CFE Treaty. There were disagreements about intermediate nuclear force deployments. Uh, The NATO countries charged Russia with with breaching an important arms control agreement from 1987. And so one goes on. There is some credence to the point that Putin was making in that interview that I opened with, you know, the, he was trying to drive home the notion that we changed, but you have failed to change in response. So there is some credit to the notion that the future was not entirely foretold. You know, it wasn't fate that we were going to get here. We got here through a series of poor decisions. I think even poor is perhaps uh, a mis construal of the way the decisions were perceived at the time. So let me try and be even-handed. NATO uh, undertook a series of actions after the Cold War. Uh, The most important in the European context was uh, the restoration of stability in the Balkans, which personally I think was absolutely necessary. Um, The second was enlargement, and this is the one that Putin subsequently became very upset about, But enlargement was always rationalised as a pan-European project which wasn't necessarily directed against Russia. And one should remember uh, that no country which was brought into membership of the alliance was coerced to do so. Uh, Every country willingly wanted to join the alliance. Uh, There was initially some reluctance in the alliance, including the United States, to actually have them. So I don't think this was, a, if you like, a strategy of predation uh, against Russia. Um, there, there was, a, I think, a genuine desire in the 90s and early 2000s to try and lay down a pan-European structure which would serve a number of purposes to prevent 
uh, instability in East Central Europe to give significant countries like Poland uh, a role in in European security to anchor Germany in a in a structure where its east, uh, if you like, was protected as well as its as its west. And in some ways, all of that was beneficial to Russia if it had had patience uh, to see where it was going and had not had, if you will, the historical and cultural blinker which saw uh, this project as directed against it. Now, where things, if you like, failed uh, was the fact that that project was not um, successful in bringing in Russia as a partner. Uh, significant effort was made uh, during the Clinton years in the 90s, but it, I think the Bush administration then lost sight of that very important parallel priority. The Obama administration tried to revive it, but by then on both sides, mistrust was already embedded into the relationship and it was very difficult to get out of the trap that they had found themselves into. Where it then gets particularly problematic, and this, I think, was a mistake on NATO's part, and most, I think, serious NATO watchers now admit this, is that in 2008, uh, at NATO's Bucharest summit, NATO issued uh, a statement under pressure from the Bush administration, and the words were quite literally along the lines that one day Ukraine will join NATO. Mm. And that was wrong for a number of reasons. One it was inflammatory to Russia. And secondly, it was actually a promise. I don't think NATO had the, the political consensus to actually fulfill. It raised expectations in Ukraine, which then gave rise to over a decade of Ukraine reorienting its foreign policy towards eventual membership. It rankled in Moscow. And actually, in some ways, it was unnecessary because Uh, Frankly, the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO was really way out of touch. And I I think that's true even now. I think the idea of Ukraine actually joining NATO is far-fetched. And there's there's no consensus in the alliance for it. And it is interesting, even the most hawkish uh, supporters of arming Ukraine, well, certainly in the United States and in the UK, will not extend that argument to bringing the the Ukrainians into the alliance. Uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, it's a slightly different view. but So there's always been that tension, uh, and uh, that in, in some ways is at the heart of the problem. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Let's go now to the annexation of Crimea, which is, I think, a very clear point at which things changed. I am 
intrigued by how influential was Europe's gas dependence on Russia, Germany's mixed feelings about Russia. I recently did an interview with John Luff in, in which the the main thrust was that we were all terribly enthusiastic subscribers to the idea that the fall of the Berlin Wall was basically the end of history. Uh, and so we get to this point where Crimea is annexed. And it seems to me that our reaction is plagued by wishful thinking simply because the alternative was too difficult to contemplate. Would you, would you agree with that? Uh, I would agree with, I think, the implication of what you're saying, that there was certainly a degree of ambiguity around the, around the Western response, uh, driven in large part by what you correctly pointed out as the somewhat schizophrenic position of Germany, uh, when it comes when it comes to Russia, Crimea is nonetheless, I think, a watershed because, um, despite the economic dependency which uh, Western uh, Europe had on uh, Russian gas, that dependency, if you will, operated in a somewhat different political realm to that which then informed decisions on how the Allies should respond to what uh, Moscow did over Crimea, uh, in this sense that what happened uh, in 2014 was a huge dent to the norms and practices of international politics in Europe. That is uh, one state uh, annexing by force, the territory uh, of another. Uh, there was a quasi-precedent in the Turkish invasion of northern Cyprus. And of course, uh, some would argue that uh, the United States intervention in Iraq in 2003 uh, was also uh, in breach of international law. But the difference between Iraq uh, and Ukraine is that uh, the Russians actually annexed territory. Uh, this was not the intention of the Americans in Iraq. So so a series of very deeply head, held norms about the way international politics is meant to work were completely turned upside down uh, by Crimea. And therefore, you had a situation where the NATO powers um, felt almost ontologically, if I can use that phrase, disoriented by what had happened. And therefore, some response was required but the break on the response, as you correctly pointed out, was the fact that there were all these other uh, relationships with Russia. If we move on to what's happened since February last year and look at what did NATO get right, what did it get wrong since February, uh, taking fully on board the proviso you made that the reaction has principally been from member states, as it were, uh, acting unilaterally. What would be your headline takeaways in the last year? What could NATO have done better? And what did it actually do rather well? Mm. Well, I, I think it's done a lot right. Uh, and so uh, while the period leading up to uh, 2022, as I described earlier, has been perhaps a history of missed opportunities. When we get to February 2022, whatever NATO may or may have done right or wrong, what individual allies may have done 
right or wrong. The brute fact is a large power invaded uh, its weaker neighbour and then undertook uh, the most heinous war crimes through a process uh, of occupation. And so that ontological disorientation of 2014 uh, is even more extreme uh, in 2022. And I think NATO uh, and the Allies then did a number of things right. The first is that NATO has maintained a political and moral solidarity in the face of Russian action. Uh, There are one or two outliers in the alliance, but by and large, uh, NATO has adopted a very firm political uh, solidarity vis-a-vis Ukraine. Uh, The language and rhetoric is very, very clear that uh, this is a completely illegal act. Uh, There is no space for compromise. Uh, Russia is in breach of international law, and it is the job of NATO and the Allies to stand up for an independent Ukraine, an independent Ukraine, which, of course, has requested uh, assistance. Let's not forget that. This is not the imposition of assistance upon a proxy by the United States. Uh, This is the Allies uh, responding to the request of a legitimate government. Can I take you on a very brief tangent, simply out of personal interest? Uh, What are your thoughts on Jens Stoltenberg's leadership? Because part of my family is Norwegian. And I have to tell you that their perception of him before the last couple of years was not wholly positive. They didn't see him as the most dynamic leader. Uh, Has he really come into his own in the last few months? Yes, he has. I think if you have Norwegian heritage, you should be very proud. I think I think Jens Stoltenberg has been an absolutely superb Secretary General, uh, and not simply because of uh, Ukraine. There are two other big issues uh, which would have tried the patience of anyone, which I think he's handled far, far better than many uh, elected national leaders. One is uh, the Trump administration. Stoltenberg was one of the very few foreign leaders uh, that Trump actually had time for. And this was because I think Stoltenberg exercised inordinate patience and courtesy towards Donald Trump. And it paid off. He kept open a line of communication with the White House in the Trump years, which had disappeared uh, in bilateral mm. relations between Washington and Germany or, or Washington and Canada, for instance. And he's he's demonstrated a similar patience uh, with Turkey, which has been a very prickly uh, NATO ally. And, and on Ukraine, he has done what a good secretary general should do. He has articulated very clearly uh, the position of the organisation he heads, and he's done so, I think, in a in a measured, clear, unhysterical manner. And uh, when listening to him, I mean, he may give the impression of perhaps being uh, a little dull on the outside, but uh, there is no grain of uncertainty left, I think, when you listen to him. They must be looking forward to the Boris Johnson era, but, <laughs> but let's let that go by the wayside. Uh, now to round off our conversation, because I'm conscious of how valuable your time is. L- let us turn to the future. A- and I guess the broad question is, simply put, is NATO fit for purpose? But but I want to focus that a little bit. What about digital? 
why is this defensive alliance not more proactive uh, when it comes to digital defense? Well, it does have some role in in things like AI uh, and cyber, etc. And in fact, uh, I think it's just over a year ago now, it's set up what is called the Diana Initiative is meant to invest in digital, cyber, even quantum forms uh, of defence. And it does try and coordinate through what's called the NATO defence planning process, the national efforts which individual countries are pursuing uh, in that regard. Uh, NATO has an official cyber and space policy in addition. People often uh, are unaware NATO has a science division which uh, sponsors a lot of science, not just in defence, but on issues like uh, climate, for instance. So it, it has done done some work. But ultimately, you know, one should remember you know, NATO is an alliance of 30, uh, soon I hope to be 32 members, where national defence is still very strong. It tends to be at the national level where uh, these issues are funded. So that would be through things like DARPA, uh, in the United States, for instance. So the best NATO can do is try and coordinate that type of thing. Um, my, but my final comment here, a, a lot of this stuff uh, individual nations are quite jealous of because it has commercial application, both in the defence industry and often, therefore, they're not necessarily that willing to share it around amongst other allies through through NATO. We hear a lot about the UK's addiction to oligarch money at the beginning of the last decade, we acted like what has been described as a Russian laundromat. And I'm, I'm not using that to, you know, bash Britain. I'm just using it as an example. Why is the financing of wars largely ignored by international bodies like, like NATO? Because it seems to me quite an essential element of a defensive treaty of a, of an organization designed to prevent war as it were yes things like the domestic financial regulations of individual allies are not within nato's remit there are you know, anti laundering instruments within um, the UN, the EU, which of course the UK is no longer in okay sure but financial sa- sanctions were coordinated largely by nato no actually largely by the european the- union Right, okay. Yeah, the, the NATO it does not play uh, a role in sanctions because mm. although under the treaty it could, there is uh, one, one clause of the treaty, does allow for economic coordination. But historically, uh, going back to the 50s, once European economic integration began, NATO effectively handed that over to, to other bodies. So sanctions, including financial sanctions, are organised either by the UN, now that hasn't got very far in Ukraine because Russia, of course, would veto any effort on that in the Security Council, but elsewhere it's it's the European Union, which has been reasonably effective. Uh, I think we're on now the 10th package of, of sanctions uh, against Russia. But none of that is to gainsay your basic point, which is that the United Kingdom was very remiss in allowing, in effect, Russian dirty money into uh, into the UK. And of course, there were suspicions that that in turn uh, had political consequences as you know, certain members of parliament 
were perhaps too close to mm. to Russia as a consequence. Germany, uh, you mentioned Germany earlier, uh, similar issues, of course. Gerhard Schroeder being the obvious case, who yes. uh, had and still has, I think, a, a lead role uh, in Gazprom, the, the Russian gas. So that is uh, unfortunately one consequence of the level of economic interdependence we've spoken of earlier. No, I'm going to ask a penultimate <laughs> question, just to be provocative, um, just to play devil's advocate. How sure are we of Ukraine's democratic credentials, as it were? I'm just very conscious that the West has a history of arming friends who then turn into foes. And there's a lot of arms flowing Ukraine's way at the moment. It's a. I think it's a fair question, and I'm in a way. It's. I'm. I'm pleased you asked it because it's generally not the question one raises in polite diplomatic company. Because given the exigencies of war, insofar as the NATO countries are, are behind one side, it's probably not the time to be questioning uh, the government, the regime one is supporting. But. You are right, I think, in the implication of your question to point out that Ukraine's political history is not a happy one. And that's not simply down to Russian destabilization. Ukraine has a long history of corruption. And uh, this is one reason why, by the way, uh, some countries would be opposed to Ukrainian membership of NATO, even if things were peaceful, because it would be a very difficult country to integrate, not in the economic sense, that's the business of the European Union, but confidence that the Ukrainian military would be above suspicion and would not be um, subject to corruption and so on. So the question is entirely fair. um, And you're right. The United States in particular does have a history of backing some rather corrupt, if not autocratic uh, regimes in the past. Uh, in Latin America and in the Gulf, etc. So while I think there is moral clarity around the current support for Ukraine, that longer term question is very significant. At the point when it comes, and I don't think it will come quickly, there is some peace uh, agreement between uh, Ukraine and Russia and thoughts are turned to how Ukraine can be integrated with NATO or the EU, I think probably through enhanced partnership, not membership, uh, it will be the job of the EU, I think, to attend to good practice in government and for NATO to attend to uh, good practice in civil military relations, where it does have a good track record. Um, this is one condition, actually, of NATO membership and the fact that the Polish military cleaned up itself uh, in the 90s and a number of others in Eastern Europe is largely down to the fact that they were operating under NATO guidance. Hmm, That's a a very good hopeful um, note on which to leave um, today. Professor Mark Weber, thank you so much for your time and for such a, a stimulating chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. It may seem unusual, antithetical even, to close such a practical discussion with the famous transcendentalist words of Thoreau from Walden, but I think they are apposite. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. 
that is where they should be. Now put the foundations back under them. This is Alexandro in the bunker saying over and out. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandre. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. With additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. Art direction by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>